So you can get a big piece of DNA and just put it into an empty cell, and that cell is now a synthetic organism. So it's not making life from scratch, but it's getting pretty close to that. This is Not What You Think, I'm Zasha Rosen. I hadn't really thought about it before I heard about our guest's work, but you can get bacteria to do stuff. I mean, you don't exactly dip into a computer interface and tell them what to do, but if you do know what you want them to do, you know a bit about the bacteria, and you know which ones to look for, how to treat them, sometimes how to change them, you can get them to do some pretty articulate stuff. Dr. Nick Coleman from Sydney University, a microbiologist, knows all about it. He spent a lifetime researching how to make bacteria feel just right so that they do what he wants them to do. Nick, thanks for coming in. You're very welcome, Sasha. One of the most important things you want our listeners to know is that bacteria aren't evil. That's right. We get the impression in the media that bacteria are germs, bacteria are bad, we have to kill bacteria, especially we have to kill 99.9% of all germs. Bacteria really are our friends. It's only a very small minority that are the bad guys. They get a bad rap in the press. You look at them on TV and you've got scary looking nebulous glowy things that turn up around your house apparently doing evil. What is a bacteria actually? Yeah, so they're just the simplest form of life. They're single-celled organisms and they have the same kind of motives and desires as higher organisms. They want to reproduce, they want to eat, they want to breathe, all those kinds of basic functions. They're just a lot more simple in their organisation than a plant or an animal. But otherwise, the same things. They have the same kinds of DNA as us and as animals and plants. There's a lot of them living in the soil. What sort of things do we find in the soil with bacteria? It's interesting that we don't actually understand what soil is or how it works, despite the fact that we've been to the moon and back and all these amazing scientific achievements. You think something as humble as soil, we would know what it is and what it does, but it's an incredibly complex ecosystem. There are tens of thousands of species living in a gram of soil. We can't grow some of them in the lab. Some of them don't even have names. We don't know what they are, what they're doing. By not being able to grow them, it means we can't study them. That's right. You can't sort of put them onto a Petri dish and and grow them up and and find out what they do and make them jump through hoops in the lab. I'm fascinated by soil, partly because of the complexity of this ecosystem, also the challenges of understanding what's going on there. And especially my thing has been contaminated soil, so trying to clean up pollutants in soil and other kinds of natural environments using the power of bacteria. You've worked with some contamination pretty close to where we are right now. We're recording in Alexandria in Sydney and in Port Botany, not too far away, there's this big contamination issue. There are many contaminated sites in Sydney, as a matter of fact. Um, One is quite close by at Botany Industrial Park, where there's some issues with organochlorine contamination in the groundwater, particularly dichloroethane. They also have issues with some hexachlorobenzene, which they're trying to get rid of there. Those sound like actual big scary words, not just antibacterial big scary words. What Um, sort of things do they do? No, these are relatively dangerous compounds, yeah, so these are suspected carcinogens they're toxic yeah they're not nice they're the byproducts of decades and decades of industry at this site where in the past disposal practices weren't so great we didn't know what we know now about these kinds of compounds but unfortunately once they get into the environment they stay there for a very long time and they're difficult to clean up and they really leak down into the water table the water underneath the ground yeah that's right so particularly with the dichloroethane it's in the subsurface under the site and so it'll leach with the groundwater as the groundwater flows over and it moves towards botany bay the site managers have invested a huge amount of money in preventing this contamination reaching the bay and cleaning it all up is this like a big plume of contamination moving under the ground under under botany bay uh not under the bay itself but under the industrial park but it moves towards the bay which is why they have to intercept it before it gets there and suck it back up and send it to a groundwater 
treatment plant. What did they get you to do with it? So we've been working on this site for a few years now and trying to come up with alternatives to the current methods of treatment at the groundwater treatment plant. So at the moment they do air stripping and thermal oxidation to destroy the pollution. And these are very effective in terms of getting rid of the pollutants, but they are very expensive and energy intensive processes. So we're trying to come up with, I guess, a lower energy, more cost effective method using bacteria to clean up these kinds of toxins. And this is kind of like, not exactly, but you're kind of telling the bacteria to go out and do something and they do it. Uh, kind of. We find that when we go to these sites, there are already bacteria living there that are doing these jobs. And we found that these sorts of bacteria, particularly the ones that grow on dichloroethane, are, are quite abundant in the ground at this site. But they're limited by the conditions at the site, things like extremes of pH. So the groundwater at this site is quite acid and it's not a friendly environment for them. There may be other nutrients that they're lacking, things like nitrogen or phosphorus. So the trick is often just to manage the environmental conditions such that these guys have the best possible chance to do their job. The other thing you can do is set up a more artificial system like a bioreactor where you can seed it with these bacteria and then pump the water into there and give them like a perfect little home to live while they do the job you want them to do. One of the options you've got with bacteria is to find bacteria that does what you want already and kind of set it on its way and make it comfy. The other option is kind of to make it from scratch, and that's relatively new. Yes and no. We've been engineering bacteria since the 1970s. So this technology of recombinant DNA or transgenics, molecular cloning, there are lots of different names for it, but it's all the same thing. Taking a piece of DNA from one organism and putting it into another organism. So the basics of that technology have been around for a long time. What's changed is the power of that technology and the scope of that technology. And nowadays it's an incredibly powerful method. I guess one important thing to get straight at the start is that it's not the same as selective breeding. And this is a really controversial thing with things like genetically engineered plants and this argument, are they bad or good? Selective breeding is like when you get pedigree dogs and, and you try to make them evolve over time the way you want them to. Yeah, exactly. So it's taking, say, the cutest puppy in the litter and then, you know, breeding that or mating it with another cute puppy. And so after several generations, you have even cuter dogs. And it's interesting to note that all our dogs today are descended from wolves. They're the same species as wolves. So even a chihuahua is only 10,000 years separated from a wolf in terms of selective breeding. That's the natural reason why a chihuahua thinks it's a wolf. And <laughs> that's right. So what can we do now that's faster than that? Or is it something it's else? It's a lot faster than that. So even, even selective breeding is often underestimated. It's incredibly powerful. I mean, in evolutionary terms, 10,000 years is just an eye blink. But now we can do that in a matter of, you know, weeks and months rather than, you know, thousands of years. The real key difference is there's no longer a species barrier. So if you're interbreeding animals or plants, you need to breed them with something that's the same species. There's exceptions, like you can breed a lion and a tiger and get a liger. They're the exceptions rather than the rule. With the recombinant DNA methods, you can take any gene from any organism and put it in any other organism. There's no barrier at all due to the species sort of line in the sand. And by genes, we're talking about the programming that makes cells do what they're going to do. That's right. The instructions that make an organism do its particular tricks. So yeah. that could stick some instructions from me and a frog. Like, it's that sort of level of, of yep, change. In theory, absolutely. There are some kind of caveats to this in that the genetic code is slightly different between organisms, but more or less the machinery is the same that reads the instructions, that turns them into to activities. So really we have DNA being translated into protein and it's the protein that does all the jobs in the cell and that process is the same across all of life. One of the real landmark studies which really opened people's eyes to this, and again it's a very old one, this was done in the 70s, was to take the gene for human insulin and to put it into E. coli which is a bacterium and then E. coli can now make the insulin. 
We still use this kind of thing today, it's been refined since then, but the basic idea is the same, that we have bacteria to make insulin for us. To me, I think this is a great thing. It's much better than extracting it from pigs and injecting that into people, which is what we used to do before. Prior to this technology, diabetics were dependent on pig insulin, which has issues, I guess, of animal welfare for the pigs, but also transferring viruses from pigs to people, which is a, a real concern. E. coli viruses won't work in people at all, so there's no risk of moving stuff from E. coli to people, or should I say far less risk than from pigs to people. A nice phrase that I've come across is that E. coli is the workhorse of bacterial genetics and it lives in poo. One trick that you can do with pieces of DNA is you can construct the basics of a computer out of them, which is a logic gate. So you need different regulatory DNAs that correspond to different incoming signals. And these regulatory DNAs can process those signals to give you some kind of output. So, so it's kind of yes-no stuff, that's the fundamental unit of a computer. Yeah, it's a binary system. So you can have one input that detects glucose, for example, another input that detects a different sugar, perhaps lactose. And if both of these signals are positive, you'll get a positive output. And that's an AND gate, which is a logic gate. And you can do the same thing for a NOT gate, a NAND gate, all the other logic gates and these are the basis of transistors which are themselves the basis of you know chips and computers. Would this computer be edible? Could you make edible computing with it? Sure, sure there's no reason why you couldn't eat that computer. This is sort of touching on the whole biosensors issue as well that you can have a biological circuit that detects an input which might be a disease state so a particular marker molecule that corresponds to a particular disease and then the bacteria will change colour or they'll emit a light signal or even an electrical signal and you can detect that with various instruments so yeah it's a really interesting sort of area to, to research. These applications like biosensors where you're processing a couple of sim simple inputs and giving a different useful output is more realistic as a technology. But theoretically, yes, you could. You could have a whole heap of bacteria living together on a little surface and all processing the different signals just like a computer. There's a bunch of relatively normal things we can do with it that are normal now. So like insulin, I understand we can use some synthetic biology techniques to test for HIV. There are a whole suite of new kind of diagnostic tools that are coming through the works now based on these sort of synthetic biology ideas. And we should really define what we mean by synthetic biology. It's the next step up from these classical recombinant DNA methods. And it really differs in terms of the scope that's available to these methods. For example, we can reprogram a whole cell now. We can give it a synthetic chromosome and reprogram it right from scratch. So you can get a big piece of DNA and just put it into an empty cell and that cell is now a synthetic organism. So it's not making life from scratch but it's getting pretty close to that. So we kind of take the car, kick out the driver and get it to go where we want to go? Yeah exactly, <laughs> that's a good analogy. There's the genes that are the actual instructions, but there's also the regulatory DNA, which controls the expression of those genes. You need some kind of vehicle to move the DNA around. This we usually use plasmids or viruses, so these are like the little cars that the DNA drives, I guess. There's a lot of little complex entities that have to come together in the right way. Often it looks relatively straightforward on paper, but then when you get into the lab, you find that nature doesn't want to play along with your plans, and this is the, the rule rather than the exception. There are moments of beauty in the lab, um, but there's a whole lot more moments of frustration, as I'm sure any of my students would tell you. How would they arrange a DNA sequence? What sort of hacks would they do? We have a whole lot of different tools for manipulating DNA, and some of them are conceptually very similar to just scissors and sticky tape and photocopier, I guess. So you can cut DNA with particular enzymes, and they cut very specifically. And then you can join that DNA to another sequence using another enzyme called a ligase. We have a technique called PCR, which can be used to amplify DNA, just a specific little piece of the DNA. And then you can chop that and then paste it in a new location. So conceptually, the methods are fairly straightforward, but when you actually get into the lab and try and do it, that's where often we encounter difficulties where, for example, E. coli might not want to have the sequence for insulin put into it, and it'll get unhappy and turn up its little legs and die, so you have to find ways around that problem. And these are often relating to gene regulation. 
So enabling the cells to grow first and then switch on the foreign gene such that the cells can make your desired product without it being toxic to them while they're growing. And the combinations are not as predictable as they are in, say, straight engineering when you put two parts of a machine together. Exactly. So life is all about emergent phenomena. And we see this, you know, often with these sorts of things that when you put two genes together, it doesn't behave like they do separately. And that's part of the joy of the research, I guess, is that you do find new and surprising things. And that's the way evolution works as well, that when new elements come together, you'll get new and unexpected properties which may provide an advantage for the organism. So in parallel with the whole new revolution in DNA synthesis technologies, there's been a massive increase in the power of DNA sequencing technologies. So we now have the capacity to go out into the environment and just sequence the DNA of, say, a piece of soil without having to grow the individual organisms in it. So this is called metagenomics. And this has been an incredibly powerful and revolutionary technology, especially for microbiology, for understanding what organisms are doing in the environment. Because as we said before, many of these can't be grown in the lab. So what we can do now is bypass the need to culture them and just go directly to their DNA and sequence that DNA, read all the instructions, and then we can predict properties about these organisms, what they might be doing in the wild. So it's almost like you don't have room for a giant television, but you can take the manual home and analyze it. Yeah, something like that. That's right. Yeah. And the great thing is that by getting these genome sequences from the wild, we can then get some insights into how we might be able to culture those organisms because the DNA will tell us perhaps what we're missing in our um, media when we try to grow them in the lab. The big interest in this field is in antibiotics, discovering new antibiotics, and there has been progress made here using metagenomic approaches to get at the unculturable organisms and then finding those genes that encode synthesis of new antibiotics, getting those out and studying those, those drugs. There was a paper in Nature just this year which was based on these kinds of methods which enabled them to culture a previously unculturable organism which yielded a totally new kind of antibiotic which is obviously immensely valuable. If people are interested in, in getting involved with the field, apart from doing an entire university degree, there is a slightly more approachable way of getting involved in Yeah, Sydney. that's right. There's a, there's a whole new movement called DIY Bio or Do-It-Yourself Biology. So they can check out the Biofoundry, who I have some connections with, so they can get into the lab and actually start engineering their own E. coli to make them glow in the dark or do whatever other the tricks they want to. Biofoundry are doing it right. They've got permission from the Office of the Gene Technology Regulator to do these experiments. It's not okay just to do genetic engineering in your shed. There are legal issues here. But yeah, you can go down to the Biofoundry and, you know, investigate these things for yourself. And we'll put a, a link to the Biofoundry. And if you're listening from further afield, there are other biohacking meetup spaces? Yeah, biohacking, yeah, DIY bio. There's a lot of them in the US. San Francisco especially seems to be a hotspot of DIY bio. I guess it's coming out of the hippie ancestry. One of the things that you've been doing in Port Botany, you are reprogramming bacteria, you hope to do useful things with the contamination down there. Yeah, so we've got pieces of DNA from this contaminated site, which contain the information necessary to, to break down these pollutants. And we've taken them back to the lab and put them into E. coli, which is our workhorse. We're trying to basically evolve the E. coli to teach them to grow even better or degrade these compounds even better than their wild type relatives that exist in the environment. This is pretty challenging because the ones we do find there are very good at doing what they do. They have to be to survive in that environment. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They've learned over the last several decades to be able to grow on these sorts of pollutants. But we're hoping that by getting them these, these sorts of pieces of DNA into the lab, we can expand them in a new direction to make them perhaps break down things that their naturally occurring relatives can't, such as trichloroethane, for example, or tetrachloroethane, so these more highly chlorinated compounds. And we believe this is doable now with things like there's a technique called directed evolution where you can change the genes and also then apply selection to the bacteria in vitro to really push them in a new direction very, very rapidly. So this is the sort of pushing of evolution we were talking about before, being able to make things change in a much faster, faster sort of way. It sounds kind of scary. Is it scary? 
Like any technology, there's a potential for good and evil, especially with the new DNA synthesis technologies that are really um, coming online now. It's possible to order any piece of DNA you like very cheap, and you could potentially use that to reconstruct some kind of pathogen. One really controversial example that happened recently was that the flu virus, the influenza virus, was re-engineered to make it match the old flu, the 1918 pandemic flu. There was a lot of controversy as to whether this research should be published. On one side, people were saying, we need to understand how this really killer flu that occurred at the start of the 20th century happened. Uh, and on the other hand, there's people saying, if this gets out of the lab, you know, this will wreak havoc. So in the end, I believe the research was published. The people who said, you know, this is in the public interest sort of won out. But it, it touches on the some of the problems of this kind of technology. You can change organisms for the worse as well as for the better. There was a fear that modern people wouldn't have resistance, like the survivors of the 1919 flu. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it was a particularly virulent strain of flu. And the reasons for its virulence were not that well understood. So that was the reason for remaking it um, and changing the, the modern flu back into this old nasty flu. Do you think it was a good idea? Yeah, I think in this case it was justified because this type of flu may come back at any time naturally and we need to know how to deal with it. So yeah, like anything like fire or like guns or knives, there's a potential for evil there for sure. You can actually order the DNA by sending an email and just saying, I want th this combination of DNA and someone will send it to you. That's right. And I should emphasize these people who make the DNA sequences do have pretty rigorous checks and balances. So they'll check if you're trying to make something bad out of it <laughs> and they won't send it to you if you are. Well, especially if um, you have their address to send it back. I imagine they'd be pretty worried about that. Um, <laughs> That's true. Uh, I guess the other thing you need, we need to discuss is like the ethical implications. Of, is, it, is it okay to mess with life in this way and to create new life? And this is something that I don't have an answer to really. I mean, we do this in our lab all the time and I must admit I am slightly uncomfortable about it but I can see that there are clear benefits at the same time. So, so for you it's a question of weighing benefits versus risk? Are, are yeah. there any more complex ethical issues for you? There are legal and ethical issues. At the moment, it's illegal to do genetic manipulation with humans, for example, but you're allowed to do it with plants, animals, and bacteria. So there is a line in the sand drawn at people, so we're not allowed to modify people, at least not the germline of people. You can make somatic cell modifications, which is changing your body so in a way that it's not passed on to your descendants, but it's illegal in all countries, I believe, to change the germline, so the sperm and egg cells such that those changes will be passed on, so you're actually changing the species, not just the individual. Presumably a lot of the ethical issues to do with that are questions of fairness, danger, disease, versus yeah, whether it makes people's I lives... I think it's really just about perceptions. I mean, I feel equally uncomfortable with engineering animals in that way, personally, as I would for people. And certainly people don't seem to care when you engineer E. coli because it's just a germ, which works in our favour when we're trying to teach it to do new tricks that I, you know, I think are of value. So if we can convince people to care more about E. coli in the, the show today, we make your, your job more difficult. <laughs> That's right. It sounds like these are the ethical issues with the big, almost more operatic issues here, but there's also like much more, this is my cool app sort of things we can do with these bacteria. Yeah, that's right. And I've been involved in this thing called the iGEM competition for the last few years, which is an international kind of science fair involving undergraduates from all around the world. There's about 280 teams in the competition now, and each team's competing to make a new and useful genetically engineered microbe, usually using E. coli, but sometimes using yeasts or other kinds of organisms. Some of the stuff these teams come up with is pretty incredible. One of the landmark ones was bacterial photography, where they engineered an E. coli to take photos by putting genes from algae in it so it could sense light and then deposit a black pigment wherever the light was sensed. And so you get a, a replica of whatever it's seeing, more or less, on an agar plate, which was pretty cool. There's a lot of work now also on biosensors, so engineering E. coli to glow, for example, when it detects some kind of pollutant. So you get a rapid and in-the-field way of detecting pollution. Another cool thing is the seek-and-destroy bacteria. So you engineer one friendly microbe to go out and kill another bad microbe, such as golden staph or tuberculosis. 
And these things I think we're going to start seeing translating into you know, clinical medicine in the not too distant future. This is really imminent. Yeah, I mean, this is experimental at this stage, but based on the kinds of success I've seen these teams having, I think it's inevitable that we'll get this happening for real at the doctors and at the hospital in the not-too-distant future. So maybe in five or ten years. Especially with infectious diseases, we've got a massive problem with antibiotic resistance, and it can't be overstated how serious this problem is. And using biological approaches has some real nice advantages, whether it's sort of phage therapy, so using viruses to attack bacteria, or engineering other bacteria to attack their mates. There's some big pluses with this. For example, evolution is then on your side instead of against you because you're using one biological agent to attack another agent. It sounds like one of the things about these sorts of artificial life forms is they don't actually survive very well outside of artificial conditions. Yeah, that's right. There's a conception about Frankensteins getting out and wreaking havoc, but in reality, the organisms that we have in nature are exceedingly robust and well adapted to their particular niches, and it's quite hard to displace them from that niche. There are some exceptions, for example, the glyphosate-resistant plants that are now released pretty widely. These can actually occupy an ecological niche, you know, quite well, because the niche is one that's being blanketed with herbicide often, so they will thrive there. Take away the herbicide and they die. Yeah, they die, exactly. Most of these organisms are less fit than their wild-type relatives because they've been tinkered with. And certainly in the, in the case of the bacteria work within the lab, like E. coli, once you start putting foreign genes in, it really doesn't like it. You have to really encourage them and force them to do these tricks. I don't think it's that much of an issue of them escaping and wreaking havoc. Nick? Thanks for coming in and talking to us. It's a pleasure. If you like this podcast and you think you know someone who might like it as well, tell them they should check it out. There are links on our website at fbiradio.com slash notwhatyouthink. And there's a bunch of other great FBI podcasts at fbiradio.com slash podcasts. Do you have an idea for the show that you think we should be doing? There's a link on that page for you to tell us about it. Not What You Think is produced by Samira Farah and Bryce Halliday. It was created by Laura Briley, Claire Holland, and me. I'm Zasha Rosen. Keep listening for our next episode. If you like Not What You Think, FBI does all sorts of other podcasts, including All the Best with Pip. Hey, I'm Pip, and I host our storytelling show, All the Best, with Michael Bryden. We do docos, features, and fiction. Tune in to FBI Radio at 10.30am every Saturday, or at allthebestradio.com, and anywhere you listen to your podcasts.